Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. It's such a great and encouraging truth, and I hope that it will help us as we work through our text of Scripture this morning. I'm going to ask, if you will, open your copy of the Bible to the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. It is my great responsibility and uh, challenge as your pastor to open up God's Word every week and try to unpack for us what the Bible teaches. The reason that is a tremendous challenge or tremendous encouragement opportunity is because what God's Word meant some 2,000 years ago when the New Testament was written, or longer than that, several thousand years before then, 3,000 or 3,500 years ago when the Old Testament was written, what it meant then is what it means today. Our challenge is to make sure we get the sense for which the biblical author, under the inspiration of God, was writing to their original audience. And so it's my obligation to interpret Scripture as it was originally intended, so then we can understand what it means for us today and how to put it into practice and application in our lives. That is, most of the time, a, an important task. It's all the time an important task. Most of the time, it's not a tremendously difficult task. And, and I say that to say this. Most of the Bible is plain. Okay? Most of what the Bible says and what it reads any of us can open it up and say, okay, I understand what God intended by that text of Scripture. And I'm grateful for that because it would make my job a lot harder if every passage of Scripture were like the one that we're looking at today. The one we're looking at today does not find itself in the very easy-to-interpret passages of Scripture. Uh, This week I've wrestled with commentaries and different opinions on this particular section of Scripture. I wrestled so much I got a black eye. I'm just kidding. One of my boys gave me a black eye wrestling, but I feel a little bit like I wrestled with the text so much this week that I got a black eye. But it has been a fruitful wrestling, I think. Now, what's interesting about studying different commentaries and different positions on this text is they're all over the place. Hardly a commentary I read, 12 or 14 different takes on this passage of Scripture said the same thing. And so I'm going to do my best to unpack for you what I think the Scripture is teaching here. Let me say at the outset, I'm not going to hedge very much when I preach it. But if you don't agree, that's okay. There are plenty of others that don't agree with the way I'm going to take this section of Scripture. Uh, I fully expect when I enter into heaven one day to be corrected on several points of my theology. And I imagine that would be the case for you as well. So if you're not convinced, that's okay. We are going to walk through some takeaways or some implications that all of us can put into practice however we take this text. Read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 11, chapter 5 of the book of Hebrews. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Pause for a second. That's a transitional verse. About this, about what? Chapter 5, verse 10, about Jesus coming after the order of Melchizedek. The writer is going to move to Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek in chapter 7. But he needed to give an aside. He needed to kind of pause because his readers, and the book of Hebrews is probably sermonic. It's very likely that it's a sermon that was preached or maybe a series of sermons preached that was put together in a letter then written back to a group of people. 
So it's sermonic, and he's saying, hey, listen, you're dull of hearing. You're sluggish. You're not able to attend to the depth of theology that we need to move to. So it's an issue, at least for his readers, of a lack of spiritual maturity on their part. Uh, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. When I was growing up in Bible college and, and surrendered to the call of pre preaching and pastoring, I never had as my ambition to deal with Hebrews chapter 6. Okay? The reason I'm dealing with Hebrews chapter 6 is we're working our way through the book of Hebrews. Otherwise, I would probably avoid this text. And the reason I would avoid it is kind of obvious. It's hard for us to make sense of exactly what it is the writer's getting at. Well, one of the questions that comes to our mind is, does that mean that we can lose our salvation? Because kind of a, a, just a, a framework reading of the text, maybe that is what it means. In fact, that's one of the ways that the text has been interpreted over the years. There are at least three major ways that uh, commentators and Christians have interpreted Hebrews 6. One of those positions would be the classic Armenian position, which basically says that one can lose their salvation. Uh, classical Armenianism believes that someone can, not, can, for whatever reason, fall away from the faith and lose their salvation. I was talking to one of our church members earlier this morning uh, who came from a free will Baptist background where that is exactly the way that they took a text like this, that what can lose their salvation from this passage of Scripture. However, I, I don't think that argument set, uh, it actually fits in this context, nor do I think we can lose our salvation. I think the Armenian interpretation neglects looking at the rest of Scripture. We have a hard text of Scripture. We interpret it with other texts of Scripture. And the clear teaching of the Bible is that Jesus Christ is the one that earned our salvation. It's His works that buy our salvation. And so we're not able to lose our salvation if it's genuine because He's the one that made it possible. If it were up to us to earn our way into heaven, sure we could lose our salvation because we're not fully and capably perfect. But that's not the way we're saved. The only way we can have full assurance that he will hold us fast, is to realize that he's the one that did the work to hold us fast. I don't think that the Armenian position here in this text is the one that we should take, where we can lose our salvation. Uh, furthermore, many of those, not all, who believe that you can lose your salvation, kind of go this back and forth, uh, I gain my salvation this day, 
I lose it tomorrow because I sinned. I pray and ask God for forgiveness and I, and I get my salvation back and then I lose it again. Whatever that is, that's not what this text describes. This text describes a situation where what is once lost cannot be regained again. And so the losing your salvation position in this text, I just don't think fits. Another uh, way that this text has been interpreted over the years is the classic Calvinist or Reformed position that interprets the readers here as apparent Christians, as people who are a part of church, who show up at church, but may not have been genuinely converted. And so it's possible for them to lose their faith or lose what little bit of kind of outward faith they had and completely walk away from Christ. I believe that that is a real thing. I believe that actually happens. Someone professes faith in Christ, and then in their profession of faith, they fall away. They reject whatever it is that they had experienced. They're not really saved. Uh, D.A. Carson puts it similar to this. Genuine faith is a faith that perseveres. A, a persevering faith has to be a faith that is genuine. I do believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe that if you have truly, genuinely come to faith in Jesus Christ, we cannot lose that. Uh, the problem with the Reformed interpretation, at least in the commentaries I read this week, isn't so much where they land, that we can't lose our salvation, but how they deal with the specific text. I, I was, they left me short. In other words, the way they address some of the challenges and some of the textual affirmations, I, I just was not very comfortable with. I don't think they did justice to the text, and here's why I say that. It's not my job to preach to you a theological system. Although I'm much more reformed in the way that I lean in interpreting Scripture, it's not my job to tell you what a theological system says. It's my job to say this is what God's Word says. And instead of reading this text through the lens of a theological system, I think we need to read this text and interpret it for what it says and let that inform how we then apply our theology. So, while I lean Reformed, I'm not sure that the way they dealt, many of those dealt with that in, con in the commentaries, is the way we're going to land. Where I'm going to preach it from is that this text is a text about losing the blessings that come with, with regard to a Christian who has fallen away from fully following Christ. And it's one of the ways it's been interpreted over the years. Uh, and so I'm within bounds there, but I think it makes sense for what the text is telling us. In short, I think this text is about sanctification, not ultimately about one's salvation or losing one's salvation. Now, we're going to walk through the text verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and try to give you a sense of why I come to that particular conclusion. First reason I come to that conclusion is that we need to remember the context. Uh, the writer is addressing Christians throughout the book of Hebrews Christians and illustrating their journey of faith or their neglect of faith by describing the Old Testament Jewish believers who had an opportunity to walk with God and yet fell away from that opportunity. The context is Hebrews 3 and 4. You've got the immediate section where he's talking about Jesus as the high priest. But if you go back just a little bit before then, the reason he talks about Jesus as high priest is because the people of Israel rejected the rest that they had. They rejected going into the promised land. And so that context is the, is the situation in which he's writing, okay? Uh, furthermore, we need to remember the audience that he's writing to. He's not writing to 21st century believers who wonder about the question, could we lose our faith? 
Or could we lose our salvation? He's not writing to that audience. He's writing to an audience who were Jewish background believers and their temptation was to stop following Christ and go back to Old Testament patterns of belief and behavior. That's who he's writing to. And in this kind of aside, he's dealing with Jesus as priest and he's going to continue to do that with Jesus and Melchizedek in chapter 7. He pauses in this aside and says something to them that's instructive for us in terms of the context. He says, you're sluggish. You're dull of understanding. I've got some things that you need to learn so that you can mature in your faith. He says, you should be teachers by now. Now, he's not meaning by that that every Christian should be a pastor, should be a teacher, should be a, a, a formal communicator of Scripture. That's not what he means. What he means is that every one of us who has entered into a faith relationship with Jesus Christ should mature in our faith to a degree where any one of us could explain the basic structure of the gospel and the basic patterns of Christian belief and behavior to anyone that's around us. Too many Christians have an experience of faith, and that's it. That's where they stop. They don't grow in debt at all. And if you were to ask them, how did you come to faith in Jesus? They couldn't really tell you very much because they haven't matured very much. I think that's some of the people that the writer is addressing here. You've become dull of hearing. You should be able to communicate the gospel to others, and yet you really need to go back and be retrained on spiritual milk. You're not ready for spiritual mature, spiritually mature food. That's the audience with which he's talking about. So let's walk through the rest of the text. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and, and let us see what we can discern from the text. Verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. There are two statements here, two phrases here that help us grasp the context and what we're supposed to do. First, let us leave. So there are some things, literally it means abandon. There are some things we're to leave behind. That's what the writer is saying to the readers. There are some things you need to leave behind. And in leaving some things behind, you need to move on to spiritual maturity. So that's why I think this is a sanctification text. He's talking about he's talking to Christians about moving into spiritual maturity. What are the things we're to leave behind? And what are the ways we're to move on to spiritual maturity? Notice the next set of phrases. We're to go on into maturity. Number one, not laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. There are six items here that he addresses in these first two verses. Two couplets each, or, or six items, three couplets rather. So the first couplet is this. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. The second is instruction about washings and laying on of hands. And the third is the resurrection from the dead and the eternal judgment. And there are two different ways that these phrases can be taken. One way that they can be taken is that they represent the basic entry point into salvation experience. So you're talking about repentance and, and faith in God. Those are ways, the means by which we enter into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The other items could be uh, further explanations of the gospel or further explanations of our theology. But the writer here says we're to leave behind these elementary teachings of the doctrine of Christ and move forward in spiritual maturity. reason I don't think that these six statements or three couplets represent the initial stages into one's conversion experience is because if you look at other places in the New, in the New Testament, we're encouraged 
to continue to build up our faith in God. We're encouraged to confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, and, and to repent of our unrighteousness. And that should be a regular pattern of our lives. I think, I think the way that the writer is using these three couplets, these six statements, is referring to how the, these New Testament Jewish background believers were going backwards to Old experiences, Old Testament experiences, Old Testament rituals. Let me unpack what I mean by that. Elementary doctrine of Christ. I think he's referring to the Old Testament. The, the, the beginning stages of what would prepare us to receive the gospel, at least for Jewish background believers. In fact, if you want an illustration of that, look at how Paul, in the book of Acts, consistently used the Old Testament to convince Jewish believers that Jesus was the Messiah. In other words, the Old Testament forms the framework for us knowing that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior. That's the elementary doctrine of Christ. Uh, how do these other six statements, how are they things we need to set aside or leave behind or abandon so that we can move to maturity? It, the picture of not again needing salvation. You don't need to repent of your sins once and for all again in order for salvation to take place. It's a once and for all thing. We do need faith in God, but we need faith in God as exhibited by faith in Jesus Christ. The laying on of hands and the washings. He's not talking, I don't think, about baptism or about spiritual experiences where maybe we lay hands on sick people. I think what he's referencing are ritualistic patterns of worship in the Old Testament. Ritual washings. One of the things that was tremendously important for Old Testament believers is making sure they were physically clean so they could experience spiritual worship. The priests, for example, had to wash their hands just right and had to be washed in order to observe the sacrificial system. When they would offer sacrifices, do you know what they, did? they would do? They would lay hands on sacrifices. They would hold on to a sheep or to a goat at the Day of Atonement sacrifice. They would representatively take a goat, lay their hands on that goat, and essentially, in a ritualistic symbol, a ritualistic event, cast all the sins of the people on that goat that would be left to go out into the wilderness. So the pictures here of ritualistic washings and laying on of hands seem to me to be Old Testament ritualistic practices that the writer is telling his readers, you need to leave these behind and move on to something else. Need to leave behind, if you look in the next set of phrases, the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. Not saying that we need to ignore those entirely. It's not his point. His point is that in the Old Testament, the doctrine of the resurrection was described and judgment was promised, but those aren't things that we have to hold on to from an Old Testament perspective. They're things that we need to see in light of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and our ultimate resurrection and something promised from God. So the way I take those two verses is that the writer is saying to his readers, we need to leave behind the things that are Old Testament patterns of religious behavior and move on to things that are spiritually mature. Verse 3, he says, we'll do this if God permits. He's meaning we'll move to the teaching about Jesus and Melchizedek, Jesus and the priesthood, all of the things he's going to continue to cover in the book of Hebrews. We'll get there if God permits. Then we get to check verse 4. If that were all it is, then, uh, then we can move on rather quickly. But it's not. Read with me verse 4. For it is impossible. Paul's there. Skip down to verse 6. For it is impossible. And then have fallen away to restore them 
to repentance. That's where the challenge comes in, right? It is impossible. And then there are, is a series of descriptors, five descriptors in verses 4 and 5 that let us know who he's talking to. For it is impossible. Some commentators and some theologians over the years have tried to soften that and say it means it is difficult. That's not what the word means. The word means it is impossible. Context demands that we interpret impossible as impossible. Later on in chapter 6, the very same word is used when it says it is impossible for God to lie. Whatever else the writer is telling us, it is impossible for repentance to be experienced by those who have fallen away. Whatever category we're looking at, the context demands that that's the way we address these descriptors. So who is he talking about in the descriptions? Some commentators, as I've mentioned before, say he's talking about apparent Christians, that these are just sort of examples of somebody who might have touched Christianity but not really a believer. I just don't think that's what the text says. We've got to do justice to the phrases that are in front of us. So let's walk through those five descriptors and see what the writer is saying. First of all, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. The word enlightened is used also in chapter 10, verse 32 of the book of Hebrews. You have been enlightened and you have continued or you have struggled. After you have been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle. In other words, in the very same book, the writer uses the word enlightened to refer to Christians, followers of Jesus, who had been enlightened by God. Enlightened about what? Enlightened about their sinfulness, their unrighteousness, their need for conversion, their need for salvation. They've been enlightened and they've endured a hard struggle. At once, those who have been enlightened. That's exactly what happens when we come to conversion, come to faith in Jesus. God opens our eyes. He helps unbelievers see that they're lost in their sin. He helps us see our unrighteousness. He helps us see the glories of God. Paul references something very similar to this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 when he says, we need to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what God does when we come to conversion. He opens our eyes. He enlightens us so that we can experience a saving relationship with God. That's phrase number one, which seems to indicate that he's writing to believers, people who have been saved. Phrase number two, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Some have argued over the years that by taste, he just simply means someone who's kind of stuck their tongue to something salty, but hasn't swallowed that, that is salty. So it's a sort of experience of, of something that would be, a, you know, a religious experience, a community faith experience, but maybe not a genuinely saving experience. In other words, not fully participated. Taste but not swallow would be a way to illustrate that. The problem with interpreting taste in this phrase that way is that earlier in the book, in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says that Jesus tasted death. And the same word used in, in different context or different settings in the book. No one here will argue that Jesus just touched death with his tongue. Jesus swallowed death. I mean, he fully experienced what death was. And so this phrase appears to me very clearly to mean that someone who has tasted the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? What's the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ? It's the fact that God would redeem sinners. So, enlightened, someone who's tasted the heavenly gift. The third phrase found in the text that seems to indicate that he's writing to believers would be the next one who are partakers in the Holy Spirit. 
It is absolutely possible. Let me say this very clearly. It is absolutely possible for someone to participate in the community of faith and have shared experiences regarding the Holy Spirit's presence in a room or a place and not be converted. That happens all the time in churches all over America or in spiritual experiences, crusades, conferences all over America. It happens all the time. In fact, there are probably some in our room today who have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. They're not truly converted. And, and yet today, in our songs, in our celebrations, in the music that we've listened to and sung, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is present in this place. And I've been in situations and worship services where it is obvious that the Holy Spirit is very much there. You see New Testament examples of this. People like Judas. I mean, anyone who was around Jesus that much was around the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira could be examples. Or Simon the sorcerer in the book of Acts could be another example. It is possible for someone to partake in the community experience of the Holy Spirit and not yet be converted. But here's why I don't think that's what the writer is getting at. The writer says those who are partakers of the Holy Spirit, those who share in the Holy Spirit, the reason I think he's talking about salvation is because throughout the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, the primary sign that someone had been converted to Christ was the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was everywhere present and a clear affirmation in the New Testament that one of the ways we knew someone was, who was not a believer, was now a believer in Jesus, is that they had been imparted, or the Holy Spirit had been imparted to them. So I think this phrase very clearly, or very simply, means what it says a sharer in the Holy Spirit. So this person's been enlightened. The readers have been enlightened. The readers have tasted the heavenly gift. The readers have become sharers of the Holy Spirit. The next phrase, the fourth one, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Meaning they're people who have heard the gospel. They've read scripture. They, they, under, they understand. They've eaten scripture. It's made sense to them at some point in their lives. And then the fifth phrase, and they've experienced the powers of the age to come. In other words, they've experienced some of the wonder-working amazement of what God's done in the lives of believers. I mean, they've experienced miracles, maybe in the technical sense of someone being healed, but certainly in the spiritual sense of an unregenerate person, a dead person, being brought to spiritual life through the glories of the gospel. As much as maybe we don't want it to mean that, I don't think there's any other way to take these five descriptors than to take them as he's writing to believers, he's writing to believers about their need to not fall away from spiritual maturity. And that's where we get to the next phrase, the key phrase of the text that helps us make sense of what the writer is getting at. Verse 6. If these who are believers, I've argued that they're believers, if these who are believers, then fall away. Fall away from what? That's the question. In your copy of Scripture, you may see a heading that says a warning against apostasy. Typically, the way fall away has been treated is that someone is an apostate. They've heard some aspect of the gospel, they've continued or they've intentionally chosen not to believe in God, and ultimately they suffer a sinner's hell because they've rejected the news about Jesus Christ. It's typically the way we have thought about the word apostasy. But the reason I don't think that's what this word means here this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. There's no other New Testament text where we can see the word fall away and compare it. 
The text, the time it's used in the Old Testament, at least in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, is found in the book of Ezekiel, and it references how the people of God, God's chosen people, had chosen, decided that they were going to reject the worship of God and worship idols. In other words, they fell away. Even falling away, though, they didn't cease entirely to be God's people. And I think context explains this a little bit. What is the writer warning them not to fall away from? He's warning his readers not to fall away from Christ, following after Christ, and thereby go back to Old Testament patterns of belief and behavior. The context helps here. Hebrews 3 and 4, if we think about it in terms of the Old Testament believers. In, In Hebrews 3, they were had the opportunity to enter the promised land, described as the place of rest, okay? And so those believers had experienced God's rescue. They had been participants in the Passover night. They had killed the lamb and wiped the blood on the doorpost. They had eaten the Passover meal. They had participated in the rescue out of Egypt. They walked out of Egypt. They saw God do all the miracles of the plagues. They walked through the Red Sea on dry land. All of those experiences, the people of God experience the rescue of God. They get into the wilderness in Sinai and they see God show up in His glory and they get the law, all of those things. And then they have an opportunity to enter the promised land. And what do they do? Having experienced all of the blessings of redemption, instead of trusting and believing in God and going into the promised land, you know what they did? They said, God's not strong enough, able enough to give us the promised land. And so they were judged by God by wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But you want to know something about that generation? Even though they experienced the judgment of God, the Bible never says that they ceased to be God's people. Okay? The Bible also says that He pardoned them in the wilderness, even though He judged them and they were separated from the blessings of entering the promised land. I think that's the tension, right? If we absolutely equate entering the rest with entering heaven, then we see where we get this tension of falling away keeps us from entering heaven. But I don't think that is the context of Hebrews 6. I think what he's saying very specifically is about us as modern-day Christians or the first readers, as Christians who are reading this text, their temptation was to go back to Old Testament patterns of behavior and thus fall away from Christ. And whatever else he's saying about that group of people, if they rejected Christ to go back to Old Testament patterns of behavior, there is a point at which that falling away cannot receive any repentance and restoration from God. When you think about it in terms of the judgment of God on the people in the Old Testament, that makes sense, right? You remember what happened right after they had an opportunity to enter the promised land? They said, hold on. We've heard you, God. We, we, we're sorry. And they decided to take the ark and their, their armies and they went into the promised land to try to win. Do you remember what happened? They got their butts kicked by the people in the promised land because they had disobeyed God in faith and, and, and disobeyed God by a lack of faith. So I think very clearly what the writer is saying to us as modern day Christians and particularly to his original readers, there is a point at which If we turn away from Christ, and if we go back to old patterns of behavior, there's a point at which we can't get back those blessings we've lost. We can't get back that time that we've lost. 
We can't get back those things that God wanted to give to us in our Christian experience. Blessings and opportunities and privileges. We'll never get those back if we fall away from Christ. Now, continue with the phrases here. I'll try to make more sense of it. Why is it impossible to restore them again in repentance? Here's the qualification verse in verse 6. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What does that mean? I mean, how in the world do we make sense of that phrase? Can we crucify Jesus again? No, absolutely not. In fact, I think that's one of the ways I think I'm right about the interpretation here. I think very simply what was taking place, the temptation for these believers was to say, Christ is not enough. I'm going to go back and I'm going to observe the Old Testament sacrifices I'm going to go back to the temple. I'm going to take my sheep and my lamb and my goats. I'm going to practice rituals like I used to, like my parents did and my grandparents did. I'm going to go back to these practices, and I need those things for my Christian experience or for my experience in relationship with God. Jesus is not enough. I think the statement, crucifying the Son all over again, is essentially these first century believers saying that Jesus is not enough. And that is a problem, a severe problem, theologically and practically. The writer of Hebrews goes to great pains in chapters 9 and 10 to say that the sacrifice of Jesus is a once and for all sacrifice. There is no other need for Jesus to die on the cross again. He will never need to go to the cross for your sins and my sins again. That happened, it happened once, it doesn't need to happen again. So if these believers thought, hold on a second, Christ isn't enough, I'm going back to old patterns of behavior... What the writer is warning them against is that they are essentially holding Christianity in contempt, holding Christ in contempt by saying, your death is not enough. That's the application for the first century believers. Do you realize that sometimes we may act in similar ways today? You may think that your sins are too big for Jesus to forgive. That's dangerous thinking. You're saying that the God of the universe who took on human flesh and died on the cross for the sins of all people everywhere, to make it sufficient to, to save all people everywhere, is not enough to wash your sins away. That's dangerous thinking, folks. That's problematic thinking. And the way he describes it here is to his original readers, you're re-crucifying Jesus if you think his death wasn't good enough to save you presently and save you permanently. Look at how he describes it. You are doing this to your own harm and holding up Jesus to contempt. What can be more contemptuous than for any of us to say that Christ's death wasn't sufficient? What can be any more contemptuous to think that I need to add my good deeds to the death of Christ to bring salvation about in my life? What could be any more contemptuous than for the original readers to say, Jesus' death is okay and it's good enough for this part of my Christian experience, but i got to go back and practice Old Testament Judaism to get the rest of my Christian experience. That's contemptuous thinking. And it's a tremendous warning that the writer is giving to his original readers. I think verses 7 and 8 kind of get, shed some light, some illustrative light on this interpretation. Look at verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. 
In other words, what he's saying is that those who understand and receive the word, the reign of God's blessings, the reign of, of God on their lives in terms of fruitful spiritual living, they produce fruitful spiritual crops. In other words, what he's saying is that we need to be spiritually mature and thus receive the blessings of God and share the blessings of God. As opposed to verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and in its end, it's to be burned. In other words, there is a way for even a Christian to reject Christ and thus not bear a fruitful life and essentially have a life that is worthless. Worthless spiritually, worthless with regard to blessings, worthless with regard to spiritual rewards, worthless with regard to even Christian experiences here in this life. I, I think that's the best way for us to make sense of this passage of Scripture. Uh, David Allen, in his New American Commentary, summarizes it this way. He said, See, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, does not teach apostasy in the technical theological sense of ultimately denying Christ on the part of believers, that's the Arminian position, or apostasy on the part of those who are not genuine believers, the Calvinist position. Hebrews 6, 1 through 8 is not a soteriological passage that is a passage about salvation. It is a sanctification passage, as is made clear from the context. If you want to discuss more about the doctrine of salvation in March and April, we're going to be moving to that doctrine on Wednesday nights in our doctrinal study. And I'll unpack some of what the Bible teaches about how we know we're saved and what God did to bring about salvation. And we'll discuss some of those very themes about those doctrines that are there. But in this case, I don't think he's saying we can lose our salvation. And I don't think he's talking to apparent Christians. Although apparent Christians need to take warning, I think he's talking to Christians who are in danger, who were in the original readers, who were in danger of turning from Christ and going back to old practices. Now, my argument may not make sense to you, or you may not agree with it. That's okay. Uh, there are several commentaries that I've disagreed with already this morning, and uh, that, that's fine. We're all going to be corrected one day for where we're in error for our theological systems. Let me leave you with three implications that all of us can take away, regardless of where, whether I've convinced you through my, my study of Hebrews 6, 1 through 8. Implication number one, we all are to cultivate spiritual maturity by growing in Christ. At the very least, the very least, we need to make sure we don't become dull of hearing. And folks, I know people who have become sluggish spiritually. They're sort of there. They're sort of not there. They, 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 they nod at faith, but it's not really something that lives out in their regular Christian practice over and over again. They're spiritually sluggish. And... If we read the text, if I've read the text correctly, they're in danger of losing some things that they'll never get back. I know some Christians that don't live victoriously. I know some people that claim a relationship with God that don't live an abundant spiritual life. And you know why? It's because they're spiritually sluggish. It's because they're not growing in their relationship with Jesus. You know what we're to do, Christian? We're to grow in our relationship with Jesus. We're to mature daily in our walk with Christ. And by the way, in the context that makes the most sense, because the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus. Jesus is greater than 
mankind in chapter 1. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the Old Testament patterns. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the sacrificial system. He is the preeminent figure of Christian history. He is the one we're to focus on, we're to worship, we're to be in relationship with, we're to read about, we're to know, and we're to grow in. And whatever else this text of Scripture says, as a Christian, we're to cultivate spiritual maturity by growing in Christ. Every single one of us, regardless of where you land in your level of spiritual maturity, Christ is the primary focus of our spiritual life and spiritual development. Secondly, second implication, hold fast to what is plain about Christ. Trust God for what is not. So I am tremendously grateful that most of Scripture is not as challenging as this text. I am. I'm grateful that as I look into the next section of Scripture, that I'm not going to, I don't think, wrestle as hard and as long with the text as I did this week. Most of the Bible is gloriously plain about what it teaches about Jesus and life and salvation and eternal life. And guess what, Christian? We're to hold on to that tightly. Where the Bible is unalterably clear, we need to hold on to that. We need to not let go of that. And when you come to a text that you struggle with, like I've struggled with this one, here's what we do. We trust God for what might not be as plain. I was talking with Dr. Mike this week about this passage of Scripture. And one of the things he said to me as we were kind of preparing for the worship service this week, he said, sometimes we come across a passage like this and it's there to remind us that God's God and we're not. I didn't write Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 8. I don't have to be the one to arbitrate who it is that it's impossible to restore to repentance. That's not my word. Now, I preach it and I have an obligation to communicate it, but I'm not, ba- I'm not bound to uphold what this word says. God is bound to uphold what this word says. So when we come across something that we struggle with, We just need to remember that God's God and we're not. And it might be difficult for me and it might be difficult for you, but God's the one who's ultimately in control of it. And by the way, if God didn't write some things that stretched our minds, if God didn't write some things that challenged us spiritually, intellectually, and theologically, I'm not sure he would be worthy of worship. And so the things that aren't as clear as we'd like them to be, we need to trust God for those things. Last implication. Take heed and be converted to Christ. Whatever else this passage of Scripture is, it is a very real warning. One of several in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is full of warning passages. In fact, that's one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews. He warns his readers not to fall away, not to go back to the past, not to reject. He says in chapter 2, don't go adrift. Don't lose your way by going back to the past warns readers. And I think primarily the warnings are for Christians. But I want you to think about this for just a second. If God's warning, if this is to believers, and God warns believers that there is a line that you can cross where you cannot experience repentance again and get back the blessings you would have, lost, you would have, you would have received, if that's a warning to Christians... If, as we've looked at Hebrews 3 and 4, God rescued his people from Egypt, 
brought them all the way into the wilderness and to the cusp of the promised land. And those people he loved, those people he kept covenant with, those people he kept promise with, if they'll get that far and disbelieve in him and experience the judgment of 40 years of wanderings, if God's warnings are that clear and that real for his people, then those who are not his people need to take heed. If God will not spare those whom he loves and saves, chastisement and discipline for their wickedness. And he's very clear about that in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. If he won't spare us, then we need to take heed and be warned. Warned like the writer says in chapter 2. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If you're here today and you have not followed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to be warned that there's coming a day when you're going to stand before a holy God and the only one that can answer for your sinfulness is Christ himself. And if you've not trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that it won't be you skating in by the skin of your teeth. It will be that you'll have to answer for your sinfulness by eternal separation from a holy God. Take heed. Christian, take heed. Be warned. Let's grow in our faith in Christ. Let's not fall away from what we know about Jesus. But unbeliever, be converted. If you have not trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, let today be the day that you become a follower of Christ. Would you stand with me? Our Lord, we come to you this day and I just want to express my gratitude to you that almost all of your word is not quite as challenging as these verses have been. Thank you for the clear teaching of Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. I do pray that we would have been helped, we have been helped, by studying this text of Scripture. I pray that we've been warned. I pray that we as a congregation, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, would cultivate spiritual maturity and growth by focusing on Christ and our relationship with Him. I pray, Lord, that those in the room that need to hear the warnings, the warnings about staying close to Christ, coming back to Christ, growing in Christ, or even the warnings about coming to Christ for the very first time, I pray that they would heed those warnings. I pray for the child or the teenager, the young adult, the older adult that's here in this room today that does not know Christ. I pray that today would be the day of their conversion and salvation. I pray, Lord, for those of us that are part of your church, that you love and that you died to redeem. Heavenly Father, will you deepen our faith? Will you help us grow closer to you? Will you help us to keep our focus on Jesus through and through, day by day, week by week? We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 